that you're the you're the one that found the uh, victim down there. Is that right? The police, well, let's see here. Here's a kid who finds a body in the field and doesn't call the police. We don't think that story they makes sense. The physical they had to be in the Lies, lies, deny. You know, it's just one of those things that really doesn't happen in Fort Collins. For the Coloradoan, I'm Erin Udell, and this is People vs. Masters, Making a Murder in Fort Collins. In the third episode of this podcast, I left off in May of 1999. It was more than a month after Tim Masters had been found guilty for the murder of Peggy Hetrick, and Lieutenant Jim Broderick, as well as Jolene Blair and Terry Gilmore, the prosecutors during the trial, were given an award for their work by Fort Collins Police. Around that same time, the Colorado Court of Appeals received notice that Tim Masters, who was sitting in a Buena Vista prison serving out his life sentence, would be appealing the verdict reached earlier that spring. In 2001, the Colorado Court of Appeals unanimously upheld his conviction, and after taking it to the Colorado Supreme Court in 2002, they too upheld Tim's conviction, this time with a 4-3 vote. In 2004, Masters mounted another appeal, this time on the grounds of ineffective counsel. He filed a 35C motion, and he did it on his own. Here's Steve Lato again. He's the attorney and author who helped Tim write his book in 2012. Tim spent a fortune on hiring the best attorneys that he could afford using the resources available to him. So he basically, you know, mortgaged his life. Everything he had, he sold and used that money, and also family members did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so they raised as much money as they could, and they got the best attorneys that they could afford for the trial. The problem is that once the trial was over, he didn't have a whole lot of money for appeals. Now, he did file some appeals, and, and I'm – you go back and read the opinions now and you, and you really shake your head because his best argument on appeal was simply, look, I was convicted off of nothing but character evidence. And, you know, both the Court of Appeals and the Colorado Supreme Court said, well, you know, there was a lot of that, but we think there's enough also the jury could have found him guilty based on, on, on what they had in front of them. And he had exhausted his appeals in the state system, and a lot of people don't understand this, but once you've exhausted your appeals in the state system, you can then file in the federal system on a theory of habeas corpus, and that is that you're being held wrongfully because there's something so inherently wrong with the legal system and the way it prosecuted you or convicted you. And Tim, at that point in time, had no legal help. He drafted his own, in essence, habeas corpus motion and filed it in the federal court. I've read it. It's a masterpiece. And, and I, asked, I asked him, I said, Tim, seriously, where did you learn to write this, and how did you write this so well? And he said, you know something? He said, I just did a ton of research. It was my life. And I, and I realized that at this point in time, it's me or, or you know, no one else is getting me out of here. And he, and he wrote this you know, brief that he filed with the federal court. And that federal court motion was so well written that a judge who saw it, you know, judges get all kinds of pro se motions. That's stuff filed by inmates saying, you know, I'm being held wrongfully. They usually look at it and rubber stamp a denial and throw it away. And they saw Tim's motion. Not only was it well written, but the gist of it, what he was saying, if it was true, was a great case for letting this guy out of prison. And so at that point in time is when a the federal judge said, you know something, I'm going to appoint counsel to help this guy. Remember Maria Liu? 
She's the attorney who was appointed to defend him in 2003. His legal team also ended up including attorney David Wymore. They were looking at Peggy's murder now with a fresh set of eyes, while also working to get Tim a new trial. They started finding stuff that didn't add up. And it became very, very apparent that the prosecution and the police hadn't turned everything over to Tim's defense team. Going into this, Tim also got a call from a Denver man who'd seen an A&E special in his case and was interested in helping him in any way that he could. In their conversations, Tim mentioned how Detective Linda Wheeler Holloway had visited him in prison after the conviction and asked him if he'd be willing to take a polygraph test. Wheeler Holloway, you see, had always had her doubts about Masters being the prime suspect. Tim took the test, flunked it, and hadn't heard much from Wheeler Holloway since. But when this man heard this, he reached out to her, asking her to help, and she obliged, meeting Maria Lou. Here's Maria. She saw how much, you know, I brought her into my office, and she saw the information I had. She goes, well, you're not, you don't have all the stuff that I produced, that I turned over to the DA's office. And so I was kind of like, what are you talking about? She said, oh, I had 13 binders I had collected and started organizing with a lot of sex offenders, and I just kind of started pulling all the police reports, and that was nowhere to be found. The DAs were telling us, oh, that doesn't exist. You have everything that we have. And then it turned out when the new prosecutors got on there that they basically got a hold of those 13 binders, and, um, you know, it, it contained, you know, a lot of the, the surveillance stuff. It contained a lot of information on the case. So Tim's defense team in the mid-2000s worked to get every piece of evidence in Tim's case turned over to them by the prosecution. And they realized that there were some things that should have been turned over to Tim's trial attorneys back in 1999. So in 1987 mm-hmm. is when the um, homicide occurred. In 1988 is when the, um, they do a, a surveillance on Tim, and it was completely exculpatory. He didn't do anything different. He went to school. He, um, yeah, there was There was nothing out of the ordinary. So they never turned that piece of evidence, which is um, under uh, the criminal rules of procedure, surveillance is actually something that that if if you conduct surveillance on someone, they have to turn that over to the defense attorney uh, if that person's charged. So they Mm -hmm. didn't turn that over, and it actually would have helped him because it showed that it would have basically debunked what what their experts was saying. I mean, it wasn't just one piece of paper. I mean, there was a lot, there was a whole body of, of, of anything that pointed away from Tim. It didn't get disclosed. And I interviewed both Maria Lou and Dave Wymore about this, and they, they were joking about how every time they went to court, they'd discover some more evidence that hadn't been turned over. And Broderick had his own personal file, and he'd reach in there, like, you know, Felix in his bag of tricks, and pull out and go, oh, by the way, I got this. And they'd never seen it before. I don't know what the malfunction was. I mean, you know, do I, you know, Jim Broderick constantly was bringing in documents and evidence logs and or evidence envelopes that nobody had ever seen before because we went to go look at the evidence and so we're actually in a hearing in November and he you know the, the prosecution the new prosecutors start to cross-examine a witness and we're like what is he holding up we've never seen that Lou also mentioned that Dr. Reed Malloy remember him the forensic psychologist who testified at Tim's trial about the nature of sexual homicides well, Lou says Dr. Malloy suggested to the police that they take pictures of Peggy's genital mutilation to a surgeon to get his or her opinion on the nature of the cuts. Detective Marsha Reed apparently did this, interviewing a plastic surgeon in Fort Collins who said something along the lines of, this was a really surgical procedure. He basically said he had told that detective that two doctors or two, two what his words I think were, two doctors would have had to perform the surgery or to perform the excision. 
um, that she had to be positioned frog leg. I mean, all of these things were exculpatory because it it was there was never any allegation. You know, there was never any evidence that you know he was that it was more than one person uh, in terms of because they had focused on Tim, right? They needed it to be just Tim. Lou kind of goes into what was and wasn't disclosed in that situation. The fact that they went out there and interviewed him was disclosed in a police report, but his lawyers didn't follow up on it. And his lawyers testified at our hearing that they had asked, you know, hey, what happened to the interview? And they, I don't know if it was the prosecutor, I think it was the prosecutor said, oh, they didn't get any information, or or Mm -hmm. there was no information. It was very dismissive about it. Now, the defense attorney should have been pushing on it and should have gone to interview the guy himself, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But that doesn't excuse the state's job to always have to disclose that type of information. And then, of course, there was Dr. Hammond. The police should have turned over the fact that this guy, well, in Dr. Hammond's police reports, because we had to subpoena those into court, okay? Mm -hmm. And we found out about Dr. Hammond. None of us were living in this area in 1995, okay? So we didn't... Or in Larimer County, so none of his defense team knew anything about, you know, who this Dr. Hammond was that he had been, basically where he lived, you know, that he lived, um, you know, across the across the field from where you know Peggy's body was found. Mm-hmm. Um, so, however, the same Marsha Reed, you know, she was involved in the Hammond case, and so was Jim Broderick. And so the fact that you've got two experienced detectives on the case who see this, you know, pretty invasive um, sexual predator, right, living, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much across the street from the where the body was found, and then you have a, a detective, uh, uh, Michelson, was working that case. He was he was. He was wanting, he told the detectives, being Broderick and the entire team, hey, we need to look into Dr. Hammond for the Hetrick murder, mm-hmm. right? That never saw the light of day. So when we subpoenaed the police reports in Dr. Hammond's case, they were still in existence, and lo and behold, in the actual police reports, it says look into Hetrick, meaning let's, you know, this we got a suspect who's killed himself. We have videotapes of these things. I mean, he had a storage locker full of, you know, pornography, but he also mm-hmm. had bins that had, like, little plastic baggies of women's jewelry, coins. I mean, those are all sort of souvenirs, things of that nature. And, and again, this is just sort of what what is pretty well known in the field of sexual homicide is that some sexual uh, – you know, sexual assailants basically like to keep souvenirs. And so mm-hmm. that should have been disclosed. In addition to hunting down things that weren't turned over to Master's original defense team, his lawyers also hired Barry Getz, who had retired in 2004 from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. He still consults on bloodstain pattern interpretation and crime scene reconstruction. He, he and another expert basically were looking at photos, looked at the clothing, looked at, you know, just looked at everything. I mean, you have to look at this stuff a million times, right? Because mm-hmm. you kind of have to, like, in your brain, based on experience and in just sort of, you have to think outside the box. Maria also says in investigating Peggy's murder, Barry managed to flip Tom Bevel, a bloodstain pattern expert that testified in Master's trial for the prosecution. 
Bevel said he was teaching a course in the area on bloodstain pattern analysis in the 1990s when he was approached by a female detective that asked him if he'd be willing to look at photographs from an old case. She gave him 15 photos, the autopsy report, and a case synopsis. And with what he was given, he testified in the 1999 trial that Peggy was likely murdered at the curb on Landings Drive. But when Barry got on the case, he found Bevel and showed him a lot more photographs. And uh, after having gone through the additional uh, information, what my opinion, uh, it says, if relying on the original information provided in 1998, I would still come to my original opinions. Mm-hmm. Based upon the additional information and reanalysis, the possibility of the victim having been attacked in another location and then transported to this location is the best explanation to comport with all of the physical evidence available at this time. This theory of Peggy being murdered at a location other than on Landings Drive directly goes against what the prosecution argued in 1999. It would mean that Peggy wasn't walking by Tim's trailer that night, that he hadn't seen her, and that he hadn't had the opportunity to sneak up from behind her and stab her. Something else that would have gone against the prosecution's argument was the interview with the plastic surgeon, who basically said Peggy's mutilation wounds were pretty advanced. This interview was something Dr. Reed Malloy said he was never told about. That, that evidence is critical for me because that right there uh, would have um, uh, changed my uh, opinion on the case and would have not uh, uh, presented to me uh, Tim Masters as a viable uh, suspect in the killing and uh, sexual mutilation of Peggy Hattrick. And I think so, this was clearly to me this was uh, intentionally withheld because uh, they knew that this would uh, this would dramatically change my opinions. And Dr. Malloy had one more thing he wanted to say before we ended our interview. I've always worked hard to uh, uh, to serve both justice and, and science. Uh, in my work as a forensic psychologist, and uh, I clearly failed uh, in this particular case. And um, uh, I think uh, that failure uh, pales in comparison to the uh, to the incarceration and imprisonment of Tim Masters, but uh, it has also uh, uh, had a uh, profound and uh, sad effect upon me. Besides flipping some of the prosecution's experts, Barry Getz also told me some stuff I'd never heard before. That's no big feat, though. Looking back now, before I started this project, I didn't know anything really about this case. I didn't live in Fort Collins during the trial. I wasn't even alive in 1987. So I was really used to the narrative that Peggy was walking home from the prime minister and someone snuck up on her or someone who was walking with her killed her and dragged her into the field off of landings. But here's Barry on his investigation and his findings. Physical evidence... um clearly shows uh, that the wounds that she received, uh, the bleeding that she did, the fact that her body had been cleaned up, um, and the bloodstains at the curb um, clearly demonstrated that she was not killed. The audio is a little shoddy there at the end, kind of drops off, but what Barry was saying is that based on his investigation, he doesn't think Peggy was killed at the site where her body was found. This is where it gets interesting again. Peggy was known to walk everywhere. She didn't have a car. And during the trial, it was said that she was walking home from the bar that night. But Barry told me something else, that his findings show it's likely Peggy was killed in a car. Uh, On uh, um, uh, Peggy's right cheek, she had these parallel lines, and then she has these dots. And and we we refer to them as abrasions, as did the autopsy. And we were trying to figure out what what they would cause those. Uh, we had a, um, 
a, a doctor, a pathologist from the Netherlands uh, visiting uh, Selma, uh, Eichenboom, mm -hmm. and Eichenbloom, and uh, she looked at those and she said, I can tell you what those are. I've seen them before. In fact, here's photographs of other cases. Those are from holding a serrated blade knife to her cheek. Mm -hmm. Now, since our abrasions, she had to, Peggy had to have been alive when that serrated knife blade was held to her cheek. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is, um, that actually is the first wound that she receives. Uh, she is alive when she when a knife is held to her cheek, and she moves uh, uh, somewhat while that knife is being held against her cheek because it abrades her cheek and actually um, depresses her cheek in a couple places and causes bruising. Uh, she is stabbed once and only once. Mm -hmm. It was not a incapacitating wound. In other words, she wouldn't have instantly dropped or been paralyzed or unable to move but rather it was a wound that uh, did sever an artery and also pierced the lung, and she, she slowly bled to death. Uh, she bled to death in an upright position while her back was pressed against a vertical surface. Um, okay. the, other, the other thing to go along with that is she had a silk blouse and she had a, a coat, and the coat and silk blouse were displaced to her left when the knife was plunged into her back. So the knife goes through the coat, goes through the blouse and into her back. And the coat was displaced actually two inches to her left and the blouse was displaced an inch to her left, which indicates that someone actually grabbed her coat, was pulling on it when they plunged the knife into her back. And then okay. she remained upright when she bled out and her, and her back was pressed against a vertical surface. Now, if you combine that also with the scuff on the bottom of her right boot, then all those point to the fact that she's in a car that's slowly moving. When she attempts to put her right foot out the door, comes in contact with the road surface, um, and then the, uh, she's grabbed by her coat, and then she's stabbed. Here's Maria Lou going further into those scrapes on the bottom of the boot that Barry mentioned. At trial, they tried to say that when she was stabbed in the back, there at the scene, her right leg did this weird pressure thing and slipped forward and she fell back and that's what caused the scrapings. But my um, co-counsel and I and our investigator, we basically reenacted it. So I got into his car and I stuck one of my feet out of the car, right? Like I'm trying to get out of a car, like I'm being abducted or I feel like, okay, this is something bad. I opened the door, he starts to drive off. And it left the exact same markings on the bottom of my boot that mm. were consistent with Peggy's. Yeah, it was really, and he did, Nate, I and mean, he was going barely five miles an hour. I mean, because I was like holding on, but you know, and, like had my boot out. Um, yeah, the exact mm. same thing. It was really, you know, that was just that solidified it to me that there was a car involved. Barry also says his investigation showed that there may have been two people involved, at least in placing Peggy's body in the field. They kept referring to this uh, trail of blood as a drag mark. In reality, the only place that she was partially dragged was down the slope there, um, in, inward from the curb. Uh, she was carried by two people. Uh, her bloody coat actually dragged along the grass uh, for however many hundreds of feet uh, before she was then laid down out in the field. 
And the first, the two people um, carried her from the curb inward, and then when the hill dropped down, the person carrying her feet dropped her feet, uh, and her feet actually dragged down the slope. And then at the bottom of the slope, her feet were picked up again, and then she was carried in a some, uh, I won't say serpentine, but a uh, a direction where they changed direction twice and then placed her body down. And then we could see where they um, went from the body back to the curb in a different route. So where were those footprints in the in this um, those in the Those footprints start at the curb where the body mm -hmm. was taken out of the vehicle where the bloodstains start. Those footprints are along the body carrying trail to the bottom of the hill. Mm -hmm. There's actually a shoe print down there that's atomic and that has blood in it at the bottom of the hill. And then there are uh, 13 atomic and shoe prints that go from the body back to the curb. This is shown, he said, by some shoe impressions found in the field. Now, in 1987, on that first day of the investigation, police really hit the footprints hard. The specific set was interesting. The shoe impression showed a pattern of horizontal lines running across the print and a small oval logo, which didn't match up with Tim Master's sneakers. The shoes, it turns out, were kind of an older man's shoe, a sort of dress shoe called a Tom McCann shoe, which were available in the nearby Foothills Fashion Mall. A shoe print expert that Barry mentions and Kevin Vaughn writes about in a 2011 story for the Denver Post said during Master's bid for a new trial, investigators originally were incorrect in their assessment that the impressions from the Tom McCann shoes started near the blood pool and traveled toward the body. Instead, the expert said among the three Tom McCann prints that had been cast in plaster, all were pointing toward the curb, as if whoever they belonged to was walking backwards, dragging Peggy's body. Now, Tim didn't own a pair of Tom McCann shoes, neither did his father, Clyde, or Peggy's on-again, off-again boyfriend, and I'm not sure if it's ever been confirmed that Hammond did. But Getz said this. I am a firm believer in that Dr. Hammond was involved in this case. Not everyone is. I am. Um, and there's a, a number of reasons why, certainly his location, the viewing of the body from his bedroom window, his uh, staying home that day the body was discovered, um, his, um, f um, the type of shoe that he would wear would be a tonic and uh, casual dress shoe. I want to just get back really quickly to that serpentine drag trail Barry mentioned. He goes into it a little further when talking about reasons why he thinks Dr. Hammond may be involved in this. Certainly one of the bigger ones is the fact that um, the view out his bedroom window is a direct line of sight to where the body was placed after it was carried into the field. And if you look at this serpentine carrying of the body, I, will, I started wondering, why would you make those two turns? Mm -hmm. And the, the rationale I came up with is because you want to place the body to where you can see it from your bedroom window. And in the middle of the night, uh, the bedroom window of Dr. Hammond had these two horizontal windows over the peak of the garage. And if the bedroom light was on, you could actually be in that field walking around and get to a point where you could see those two windows illuminated, and then you would mm. drop, place the body there, knowing that when the sun came up, you could stand in your master bedroom window and view the body. And then there was the mutilation, which Getz said he refers to as the surgery, since in his words, the removal of that vaginal skin is a known medical procedure. 
Given all that, here's what Barry Getz thinks happened the early morning hours of February 11th, 1987. Just a warning, it's a little graphic. She was in the um, uh, Prime Minister lounge, mm-hmm. um, at some, and she had uh, consumed multiple drinks in a short period of time. She got up because of the dispute with her boyfriend. Uh, she left, but before she left, she made a phone call from the payphone in the lobby of the Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. She left the Prime Minister, she got into a car, at some point, the person who was in the car uh, either asked or attempted to do something to her that she rejected, attempted to get out of the car. Uh, she was pulled back in the car. A knife was held to her cheek. When she attempted to get out, uh, they grabbed her coat and plunged the knife into her back. They held her in the car uh, until she bled out and died. She was then transported to some type of facility where she was uh, undressed. Um, And I say undressed, uh, the lower body clothing uh, was removed, at least one leg, one boot, one sock, one leg of the pants and panties. Uh, She did have surgery on her left uh, breast and on her um, vulva area of her genitals. She was washed. I believe she was photographed after she was washed. Uh, She was then transported to uh, landings uh, by a vehicle. She was taken out of the vehicle, set down on the curb for a brief period of time, and then carried into the field, uh, left there. Uh, Her purse was placed on her arm, and then they walked back to the vehicle in a straight line and drove away. So while Barry was taking a new look at Peggy's murder and coming up with this new theory, something else was happening in the case. In October 2006, Tim's attorneys started working toward getting Peggy's clothing, which was still in evidence, tested for DNA. Here's Linda Wheeler-Holloway. And what, where the case took a big turn was that uh, I had some, some people that I had met through the International Homicide Investigators, which, uh, Selma Eichlenboom, and I kept up with the correspondence mm-hmm. with her. She was, her and her husband had a, I was aware through, you know, for traveling and, and being involved with the International Homicide Investigators that they had a new technique for DNA. So I flew to Holland, I think it was in 2005, mm-hmm. 2006, I think that was. Yeah, and uh, met with them. They, uh, they agreed to come on their own and meet with defense and see if there was anything they could do. Because we needed something that was substantial in order to get the case re-looked at. This testing would be done on the places on Peggy's clothing where her murderer would have touched, leaving his skin cells behind. And it would be done by this Dutch couple who ran a lab out of Holland and were on the forefront of this new technology. I flew to Holland and I brought back the icon booms to the, uh, into the, our, uh, the defense. And David Weimar said, you know, we'll try to get them to look at it, the evidence again. but. Um, but David said there's little chance that's going to happen. It's never happened that, that it was that a case like this is then taken out of the country and given to a private lab. But let's give it mm-hmm. a try. We presented that to the judge. The judge didn't know me. Again, years of being a homicide investigator and uh, my reputation, and he allowed it. We about fell over. Mm-hmm. But he said, go ahead and take take that evidence. We've had it. Prosecutions had it for 20 years. A lot of it was in the court system at, in Fort Collins uh, since the trial. 
and had not been destroyed, fortunately, because it could have been after the Court of mm. Appeals and the Supreme Court upheld it, and it was taken to Holland. And voila, <laughs> there they found a profile, and it wasn't Tim's, that was in, um, in places exactly where the murder would have touched. It was like it just changed the whole course of this case. The DNA profile found on Peggy's clothes belonged to her on-again, off-again boyfriend. It's been reported. It's all over the internet. There hasn't been an arrest in the case. Some people, it seems, explain it as, yeah, duh, his DNA was on her. They saw each other that night. They could have touched. He could have held her wrist or hand or waist. And hello, they'd known each other for years and dated for a lot of that. I just don't know. But it's not my job to know. It's my job to tell you the facts and to share what I've heard. Here's what Barry said on it. I'm not in the same uh, um, group who feels that that is uh, that DNA was placed there during the homicide. I think there are other um, means that his DNA could have been placed where it was found. Just so you know, I did try to reach out to the boyfriend. He's apparently still in the area, but I couldn't find a way to contact him. I think I found his brother, who Barry said he talked to during his investigation, but a letter I sent to him telling him about the project and asking him to pass along my information never got a response. You know, there would be no reason for Peggy to try to escape from his car. Right. Uh, and, there, you know, he can't do the surgery. He would need someone to help carry her into the field. Um, you know, there's just, uh, he'd have to get rid of the shoes, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, he didn't um, have Tom McCann shoes, did he? Uh, none in his house, his okay. park. Anyway, back to Tim. In 2007, Don Quick, the Adams County District Attorney, was appointed special prosecutor to handle Tim's bid for a new trial. In early 2008, Tim wrote in his book that he found out the rest of his court hearings in Larimer County had been adjourned, though. And that same day, he saw himself on the news with the announcement that Don Quick's office had decided to vacate his sentence and release him from prison. After nine years in prison on January 22, 2008, a Colorado judge vacated Master's conviction. He had entered the Larimer County courtroom that day a convicted murderer and left a free man. Soon after, the Colorado Attorney General's office took over the case from Fort Collins Police. Both agencies declined to comment for this project. And a week later, in early February 2008, the Larimer County District Attorney filed a request to drop all charges against Masters. I, I didn't know until that night when all of a sudden I get a call that says, hey, um, you know, there's press release there um, at the Colorado Investigations. They're letting 10 Masters out and I went oh my god so I called I called Richard Selma middle of the night in Holland Elkenbond and I said you need to come they're releasing him on what you did and they were like oh my god they bought a last minute ticket so they were here we got them back in town the day before to be here when Tim walked free and what was it like being there when that happened it was incredible it was just like uh, the highlight of my career it was like oh my god you know for something that had been told for years working on this and even working with the defense you know it, Probably not going to happen, this is, <laughs> but we're going to keep working on it because we all believed in Tim's innocence. Later that year, a civil suit was filed against Jim Broderick and former prosecutors turned Larimer County judges Jolene Blair and Terry Gilmore over allegations that evidence was withheld in Tim's 1999 trial. Blair and Gilmore were censured by the Colorado Supreme Court. In November of 2010, Larimer County voters ousted them from their seats as judges in the 8th Judicial District. Broderick was indicted twice on felony perjury charges by grand juries, and both times the charges were dismissed. He retired from Fort Collins Police Services amid an internal investigation. Here's Ray again, who was retired by the time this was all going down. 
it it, uh, it was an embarrassment, and and I and it caused a division within the department because there were some who said, "Oh no, Roderick's right," and then there was the other side said, "No, there was an ethical issue." It was justice. Um, mostly hard on me. Jim Broderick was um, a friend. He was a partner mm-hmm. when we were on patrol, and, and of course I admired him a lot when he. Uh, I brought him into the case. I was the lead I, to, to go help me with the interview back in Philadelphia. So uh, I knew him. I knew his wife and his kids, and they were personal friends. So it was, mm-hmm. but it, we're a brotherhood. But it, you know, what, what prevailed over everything was uh, justice. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, to say the least, it, it broke a lot of bonds. It uh, it polarized the Fort Collins Police Department. Uh, broke it in a lot of ways. And then, uh, you know, with the loss of the chief of police and two judges and eventually Broderick losing his career over this, it's been quite a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had to do it all over again, I would have done the same thing because it was the right thing to do. Because yeah. there's no doubt, you know, Tim Masters is absolutely, totally innocent. In 2011, the Colorado Attorney General officially exonerated Tim Masters. And it definitely felt at one point where the dominoes all started falling in the other direction. They started falling for Tim Masters. That's Trevor Hughes, a former colleague of mine from the Coloradoan, who now covers the West for USA Today. He started covering Tim's bid for a new trial in 2007. You had, he was he was released, he was exonerated, the judges were, you know, disciplined by the Office of Attorney Regulation. Um, you know, there was this whole cascade of things where it felt like that things really did shift. Mm-hmm. And, and people were like, yeah, wow, this really, this, this was wrong. And then I think the, the city's dis- and the county's decision to pay that very large cash settlement, I think that really, I think that was the kicker for many people where, mm-hmm. you know, they saw their elected officials stand up and say, we screwed this up. I asked Trevor, who covered Tim's quest for a new trial hard, if he thinks we'll ever see a conviction in the case, a correct one. Geez, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the attorney general's office looked at this case. They convened a grand jury to investigate it, and it just seems to have gone quiet. And, and you know, I, I would love to see something happen in this case, but it just, I don't know. This It feels like this case got so screwed up that no one will ever be prosecuted successfully because because all the other person's defense has to do is say, they convicted another guy for this. Like, what about reasonable suspicion, you know, reasonable doubt? Like, come on, they convicted somebody else. He also said this earlier in our interview. This case was a terrible tragedy all the way around. I mean, so many people suffered. And, and you know, I think about Peggy Hetrick's family. I mean, they, in some ways, the system utterly failed them. You know, we talk about justice for the community or justice for, for her family. And it feels like we just, we collectively screwed this up. It was our elected officials, it was our police departments, it was our investigators, it was our prosecutors. We collectively, I feel like, we screwed this up. And, and you know, in some ways, is the, case, the same goes for Tim Masters. I mean, we really messed things up for that guy. Mm. And I, I mean, that's, that's, you just never want to see that happen. And you'd like to think that the system would not fail so horribly. And, and yet it did. Steve, the author who helped Tim write his book, pointed out something else that I think kind of sums it up. It's certainly not the poster child for how to conduct a murder investigation, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the that's the real sad upshot of this is that, you know, whoever killed Peggy Hedrick is still out there, you know, and we know that. At the beginning of this, I didn't say that you'd be left with closure. I said you'd be left with questions. And this community lives with those questions every day. 
Where did Peggy go that night when she left the Prime Minister? Did she walk down the wrong path? Did she get into the wrong car? We ask them, I guess, hoping that one day we'll also have answers. For the Coloradoan, this is Erin Udell. Thanks for listening to People vs. Masters, Making a Murderer in Fort Collins. Thank you.